Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. Today, we have a man who, on his business card, describes himself as an unemployed lazy bum. (laughs) He states that ultimately this title gives him the freedom to do what he wants to do. It's the ultimate goal for any entrepreneur. His name is Stuart Snyder. The truth is, The title of the unemployed lazy bum is a tongue-in-cheek name that is warranted due to the many years of sacrifice and hard work that Stuart's placed in entrepreneurship, where in 1999, he co-founded the company Your Amigo, which turned out to be a global internet marketing powerhouse, which he and a team started in Adelaide. Your Amigo started life as a search engine and morphed into an automated optimization service. So basically finding web pages that Google couldn't find and turned into an international company that provides artificial intelligence, organic search and marketing services in the USA, the UK, Europe and Asia Pacific with offices in California, New York, Illinois, Florida, Europe and the Asia Pacific, just to name a few. Funnily enough, Australia was not a user of this product, which saw you and me go winning an SA exporter, many SA exporter of the year awards. Stuart grew up in the apple orchards of Cupertino, California, a place we know now as Silicon Valley, where he went to school with what he describes as a long-haired hippie dude called Steve Jobs. Stuart's recollection of Steve and the many conversations that, that he had with him was that he definitely didn't believe would amount to the success that he did have, basically due to his experimental nature. Stuart has a belief that each individual is on earth for their purpose and believes that the greatest learning experiences come from the toughest times in life. Stuart grew up in a dysfunctional family and wandered out into the world by himself at the young age of 19 years. And a few years later, he eventually moved to Australia Adelaide after finding love. He started out as an accountant working for KPMG and then he moved into a world-leading defence company called AMRAT where Stuart recognised the quality of individuals in his team and from this team they went on to start and create Your Amigo. He describes the journey of creating his own business as a really tough experience with many challenges and he attributes the great deal of his ability to grind through the tough times through the resilience that he was able to build through a young age. Now with a wealth of life and business experience, Stuart focuses on giving back, where he invests in Australian technology startups and he provides mentoring for promising founders and is an influential voice in the South Australian startup scene in particular. This chat with Stuart is such an interesting story, filled with all the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and all the lessons that he learned along the way. It's a must listen for all. I hope you enjoy. Cheers. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco and today we have the one and only Stuart Snyder. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you, Daniel. 
Glad to be here. It's uh, yeah, really great to have someone of your caliber within the the walls of South Australia. So thank you again for all the work that you do. For those that uh, who don't know Stuart, he's deeply involved in uh, the entrepreneurial and startup space in South Australia, having created his own um, his own business called Your Amigo, which uh, which which took off. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey, Stuart, about how you came to where you are from your younger days uh, from, from America to Australia? Okay, it's a bit of a story, but I, I grew up in what's now Silicon Valley when it was still apricot orchards, and yeah. people don't understand it, but it was not always Silicon Valley. It was an agriculture region. So you were born in... Uh, no, I, uh, my parents moved there when I was 13. In 1969, their house in Cupertino, California, was built on a former apricot orchard. And I wound up going to high school with this hippie guy named Steve Jobs. There you go. <laughs> and uh, no one in high school thought he would amount to much. Um, so you never know. It was a bit different, a bit weird. Um, but I saw the whole area change when in 1982, Apple listed on the stock exchange and overnight, there were all these millionaires. Uh, they didn't know what to do with their money, so they reinvested <laughs> it in other startups. And so you've seen, uh, you know, the thirtieth generation of successful startups making money, then people reinvesting. And I started my career a as an accountant at KPMG uh, in 1979 in San Jose, California. Uh, and I worked for a number of tech companies. Uh, but after I graduated university, I saved all my money and traveled around the world for six months. I met my ex-wife, who's from Adelaide, on a bus from Nepal to London. Uh, and we kept in touch. And eventually we got married in 1993. That brought me to Adelaide. Uh, I worked, took the first job that came along in a defense company. And I wound up working with the brightest. Which defense? Which, which company was that? Uh, uh, this was called MRAD. We MRAD. made radar environment generators okay. uh, for F-18s, and it was a world leader. The company had grown from zero to 55 people in three years uh, and signed up uh, $30 million in contracts. And I thought, wow, this is by far superior team than anything I've seen in Silicon Valley. And so I suggested one day we should start our own company and so the managing director of that defense company was consulting to the flinders university um, and their commercialization area found an idea um, to find things that google couldn't find and we were caught up in the dot-com boom so in 1999 i co-founded your amigo uh basic on an idea of some search engine technology that could find stuff Google couldn't find. Eventually, uh, and that was loss making for six years, which was incredibly stressful. Uh, but we had a charismatic CEO. He raised capital. Uh, we matched it with grants. And eventually we found our way. We became a, morphed into a automated search engine optimization service. And we were the only company in the world that really could do this using technology we could create from a 900 product page website, over 30,000 pages, based wow. on popular search phrases that they had on this site, um, but they didn't have a page. So we could eventually increase traffic and conversions by five to 
we were getting paid on a cost per click or revenue share, and it became massively profitable. Um, I think to date it's paid over $60 million in dividends. Yeah, wow. So that for Adelaide, that was very successful. What did it get valued at? Uh, was- uh, I'd, I'd rather not okay. say, say about <laughs> that, but... Um, uh, but basically, <laughs> basically, uh, people, uh, the investors got paid enough dividends well to, to get a return. And uh, it's still going, but morphed into a different technology. Um, after 12 and a half years, we were trying to sell the company. And then Google punished the sites for the first time. And I thought it was time for me to change. I, I didn't enjoy it. So I basically retired. Uh, since then, I started mentoring at all three universities and other programs around Adelaide. I've invested in six companies that startups from Adelaide and a Sydney-based venture capital firm, Blackbird Ventures, that's done extraordinarily well. They've invested in companies like Canva, Zooks, um, Safety Culture, Culture Amp, are all billion-dollar companies. Brilliant. So, yeah, that's... A good journey. Uh, yeah, it's a, it, yeah, it is an interesting here today. Journey. So we've got I've got a thousand questions that can come out of that one little story. Okay, it's going back to Silicon Valley. You grew up in Silicon Valley, and you went to school with what you call a, a young hippie man named Steve Jobs. Um, so for those who don't know, Cupertino is now holds or ho- is the um, U.S. headquarters for he, for Apple, isn't it? Yes, their spaceship. Uh, We visited that when I went uh, to my 45-year reunion three years ago. They have something called the Spaceship, the $5 billion headquarters, um, which I thought was kind of crazy because Silicon Valley is already overcrowded and overpriced. (laughs) And now with everyone starting to work remotely, it would be interesting to see. see. But they they had that belief that, uh, and I think this came out of Pixar, that you need people to mingle with each other to yeah. get creative ideas. So that was the idea behind that uh, structure there. It makes sense. I yeah. Think. Uh, so you were in Steve's year or class? Yes, yes. You were. And you. I know that you've mentioned to me before that you uh, thought he was an interesting character going on a real spiritual journey. Yep. Um, that's how I knew him, I think. Uh, we both had something in common that was different that we wanted to uh, obtain nirvana or spiritual enlightenment. Uh, And he would tell me about what he experienced on LSD because he thought that would expand his consciousness. And I told I didn't think that was a real experience, but um, I, I told him I thought maybe by living life, I would, you know, obtain nirvana that way. But I don't think either of us have, have got there. Maybe he's there now. <laughs> yeah, in a different realm. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in that, in, in, in um, the journey towards enlightenment. What what mindset brought that on? Like what, what brought you to the place where you thought and you were even open to the uh, reaching the point of nirvana or enlightenment? Uh, I, I think um, for me, I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, and, and I left home when I turned 19. I joined the American Navy just to get away from home. But uh, I think when you're sort of a teenager, early 20s, a lot of people start to explore their own spirituality. And, you know, I looked at a lot of different religions and things. 
but to try to understand uh, meaning in life and what our purpose is. And so even today, I look back and when I was that age, I was thinking, what do I want to accomplish with my life? What's really important? Mm. Uh, and Steve was another one who he did think differently than most people. And some people thought that made him weird, but I thought that made him interesting. <laughs> was that a product of the environment? Was it, was everyone in that area at the time doing the uh, same thing? No. Or uh, well, anonymously? there was a bit of that. California was part of the, the, hippie, the hippie revolution yeah. and all that and spirituality, new age thinking. But I think it came down to just some individuals are more inclined uh, to look at that sort of thing. And a lot of my uh, classmates, some of them became... One became a Jehovah's Witness, uh, another Seventh-day Adventist, and some are agnostic atheists. So yeah. it was just a variety. Everyone went on their own journey. Exactly. So Steve dabbled in the uh, psychedelics. Yeah. There are some famous podcasters out in the world at the moment, one namely Joe Rogan, who describes the psychedelic experience as a must if you ever want to reach enlightenment. You said Steve was on the same thing, but you chose not to. Yeah. Why uh, Why did you choose not to if that's something that you wanted to? Well, uh, for me, it didn't feel right. I mm -hmm. just felt like drugs are not a natural experience and that uh, by experiencing life, having a lot of interactions with people, some, some goods, many not so good, yep. but you learn uh, from life and that that's real to me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I feel like, a, 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 in my opinion, maybe drugs might be a, a take you away from reality, and that's what why for me it wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah, great. I'm not advocating it. No, it's just, it, it's, uh, no, it's an interesting, especially given the environment and the year that you were. Uh, I, I dare say that a few, there were a few people dab dabbling. Well, he, he does say he did say I've read every book about Steve Jobs, yeah. and he did say he thinks it's one of the best things he ever did. So, yeah. for him, that that was good. But I, I actually was disappointed that I think he could have done a lot of good in the world, but he just focused on great products, not making life better for people, I think, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So did you um so you met your wife on a in Nepal on a train. Ex wife, uh, yeah. Met, sorry, ex wife in, in on a journey to Nepal. You then come to Australia. Was that a big move for you? What what uh, uh, what brought that well, why why not settle in in the world where everything was happening and why come to it? Uh, well, I think yeah, growing up in Silicon Valley, it was very materialistic. Uh, there's no real culture there. Everyone's about making money. Uh, and I was a bit burnt out of that mm. uh, and ready for a change. And maybe because I'm a, a traveler, I like to try different things. And I, I, I think I got out of Silicon Valley what I could get out of it. Uh, when I went back for my reunion, I all the people I grew up with had left or the ones that were still there want to leave. Mm. Uh, it's very crowded, very expensive. There's no culture or community. A cutthroat. It, it's very cutthroat. And the, I, I didn't, a lot of the people are, are not nice people. So, <laughs> um, and that happens when money is, is you know, the priority uh, when there's a lot of money. So uh, I, I love Adelaide. So I'm glad I left and, most of my friends now kind of envy me. I think they, they look at America as kind of in the decline. 
Mm. Well, given recent events at the moment, it it seems like the media is portraying it in the same way. So you come to Australia, you have kids? I have two uh, adult children. They live with their mother. Unfortunately, our relations strained, and so I don't really hear from them. And hoping one day that will change. Great. Do you but, believe that that is a result of the uh, countless hours that you put into work? Or? Uh, that may have been a contributing factor, but I don't think that really was the, the main reason. It really comes down to the chemistry of the people. There's mm-hmm. uh, My own family was dysfunctional, and I think some of the problems may run in my family. Um, but I'm hoping one day to, to reconcile. I, I still love my children and family as you would yeah yeah. well fingers crossed for you mate that it all works out in the future so you've 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 started this you were working for kpmg as as an accountant and then you decide that you want to uh, get into the startup world well i had uh six jobs in 10 years out of university that's probably shocking from for someone from adelaide but there were so many opportunities, and I didn't really, I didn't, oh, I hated KPMG. They mm. uh, didn't show me what to do, and they belittle me and say, you're over budget. But they treated everyone pretty much like that. And then I um, uh, then I worked for a number of tech companies. Uh, some weren't doing well. Go out of business. You just find another job within three months. Uh, and I had more job security there than I ever had in Adelaide because there were so many opportunities. Mm. And I always made more money, more responsibility. Uh, the last job I had there, I, I was there for five years and I enjoyed the people there. So um, then I came to Adelaide. And so tell us about the journey and the decision to move away from the secure, uh, the security of a, of a paid job into the startup world, what, uh, how, how did you handle those first couple of years? Well, I think uh, after the defense company, uh, it was indirectly sold by, owned by the state government and sold by them, and mm-hmm. then we were made redundant. I had experienced a year in Adelaide without permanent work. Um, I did find two contracts in the government, and I absolutely hated that. It's I think the opposite of working in startup world. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I said uh, to my former coworkers, uh, let, let's do a startup one day. And I thought, well, uh, um, why not give it a go? You know, I've got nothing to lose. Uh, I always wanted to try it there. The job market wasn't very good in Adelaide. And fortunately, in the long term, it, it worked out. But what I didn't realize is, Doing a startup in Adelaide in 1999 was not common. Uh, I, I just assumed that everyone would think like me because I came from Silicon Valley yeah. and they would understand it, that you could do really well. But yeah. here it was foreign. Is that a driver of the success, the fact that no one else was doing it and you guys are in front? A- absolutely, I think. Uh, I think there's opportunity uh, where others don't see it, like mm. in, in Silicon Valley, it's saturated with startups and mm. money, and I think most of them fail. Here, you, what I met, the brightest group of people I ever worked with, um, I probably wouldn't find a group like that in Silicon Valley because there's so many opportunities. But here, you could get a group of really smart people and and form a company. So that was a, a big advantage. You have often, you've been quoted uh, 
previously to say that in the first six, six years your plan B was a certain method. <laughs> can, uh, you, can, you, uh, uh, can you elaborate oh, on, well, on your comments there? Uh, M- Matthew Michalowicz was uh, lecturing at Adelaide Uni and he asked me to give a talk and I kind of jokingly said that I thought my exit strategy might be suicide. <laughs> but I, I was just, I was joking. But it is an incredibly stressful and something that people didn't talk about in those days. They do talk about that now, mm. mental health. Yeah. Uh, because it is a really big issue. You put your whole life online and you have no job security, uh, maybe no income uh, or little income, and you, you've got to make a living, and every day is, is very stressful. Um, but it's also rewarding because you use your creativity and your energy, and, and whatever comes out the other end is a reflection of what you've put in. Was the the plan B... If you look at it with a half glass full <laughs> attitude, it's you're putting everything into the business. You, every, yeah. Your heart and soul goes in, into it, uh, and you'd either die bef- first before it, it, it's not yeah. successful. Why? Why did you have that attitude? Were you passionate about the product that you were creating, or was it just? The, you could see the light at the end of the tunnel or what was no, that? What, uh, kept, what kept you going through uh, those? First? Well, I think my passion was having worked in Silicon Valley with lots of mediocre people and high positions, I had a strong view that if you had a really bright group of people like you do in Adelaide and you had sales and marketing presence in America, you could create a, a very successful company. And that was my passion. And I had a lot of people put us down, tell me we would fail. Uh, and even if we did fail, I still would have done it for because I grew as a person from being an accountant who sat behind a computer all day looking at numbers to being someone who'd been to like two to 300 pitches to investors, to customers, to learn how to communicate. I grew so much as a person. I still would have done it even if we failed, and I still would have been a, a better person even if we failed. But I was very fortunate we were successful, and all those people who laughed at us are still working, and I'm retired. <laughs> so, As your business card says. Yeah, unemployed, I mean, lazy bum. <laughs> I love it. Isn't yeah, that, that's the, it's very inspirational, it I'm is. finding. <laughs> well, you've reached the point of what every entrepreneur wants to do is, is to yeah. become – is ultimately to become unemployed. Well, it's interesting. I think what most people want is the freedom to choose what they want. And so even though I became very well off, the the year I retired, I wound up going through divorce and had uh, strained relationships with my family and was very depressed. Mm. So even though I was very financially well off, it didn't bring that happiness. But then things turned around. I remarried a wonderful woman. I have a wonderful house wonderful life. I'm very, very happy. I live a, a very stress-free life. Uh, so I think uh, I, I see some of my the people I used to work with, uh, some of them still want to continue on even though they don't need to. Mm. Some and really enjoy what they do. Others, there's an ego thing uh, about being successful. As That's how they measure success by monetary but i i got off that i said i don't need that to be happy i'm 
happy doing what I do. Well, I think it's an important point that being financially, uh, well, being having being very wealthy doesn't exactly bring happiness. Do you believe that your journey for enlightenment and the meditation and everything that you may have done in your earlier days helped you get through that depression and that uh, that that time of your life where you were in a struggle yeah i i i'd have to say i look back uh i'm, I'm one who be, believes in uh past lives i look at a lot of videos on people who experience what's called the near-death experience so I think we all come here for a purpose to learn different things. In my case, uh, I think what made me really strong was I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. Uh, I, I left home at 19. I had to support myself ever since. So I'm, I'm really pretty, pretty tough that I can handle difficult times. It's not enjoyable, but I, I just grind through it and, um, uh, that that's how I deal with with things. Um, I, I realize some of the the worst things that happen to us are actually lear- great, the best learning yeah, experiences. So not to think it's all the end of the world. We only need to look at the pandemic that's happening at the moment, and the amount of learning that that is coming out of that. Exactly. Like I think one of the greatest things is uh, remote working. Mm. Is people have woken up, and I've always believed this. Why do you have to all drive in and commute to work when 90% of what you do, you're sitting behind a computer mm. or, or I think it's also great for a company in Adelaide is you can do a zoom meeting to customers in America or mm. elsewhere. You don't have to fly there to meet people. Absolutely. So you mentioned you left home at 19. What, where did you go? What did you do? I joined the American Navy. Oh, I was right. on an aircraft carrier, the USS enterprise. And again, I hated that. Uh, it was like a, f- 5,000 men at sea for a month at a time. It's like a floating prison. <laughs> but I got two yeah. really valuable things out of that. And it's easy now I can look back. Yeah, I couldn't see it then because I hate it. I was just counting how many days I had <laughs> left there. But uh, I got to travel. Yeah. And so I learned to, the love of travel. And uh, I saved all of my money when I went back to university. When I graduated, I, set, I spent six months traveling around the world and, you know, and one and two star hotels, but yeah. I got to see the world, mm-hmm. which I'm so grateful for. That changed my life. Um, and the other thing I in, realized in, in what way? Sorry, what in what way? That- well, uh, I met my uh, future ex-wife on that trip, but I also I learned uh, about different people and different cultures. And one revealing moment, I was in our bus rolled over in the desert in Pakistan near Quetta, Pakistan. This is now where the Taliban headquarters are, but I found people friendly there. We took a local bus to Isfahan, Iran. I was there for 10 days where we were waiting for the other bus. And all the, I was mainly traveling with Aussies, and they told me, don't tell them you're American because you're seeing people march in the street, death to America. This is a year after Khomeini came in power. And I told everyone, I was young, I told everyone, oh, I'm from America. And I was shocked. Like they said, oh, we're so glad to see you. We love the American people. We just hate your government. (laughs) And I've got relatives there. And I learned right there that people are the same everywhere. There's some good people, some bad people, but most everyone's just trying to make a living. And that was really 
uh, I learned from that experience something very significant. And I, I carry that today. I don't try not to judge people based on their background or ethnicity. And I think people are the same everywhere. We're all human being, right? Exactly. Yeah. There was a, I think we've said this before on a podcast. There's a saying um, named what says, I saw it on a T-shirt, someone's T-shirt, and it said, uh, humankind, right? Uh-huh. And then underneath it said, be both. Yes. Right. So yeah. it just, and that for me, it was just a penny drop moment. It's like, it, wow. Yeah. What, what is sad, uh, I view that we're all related. Our, yeah, exactly. Our ancestors exactly. came out of Africa yeah, about 100,000 years ago, but now everyone's split up in different tribes yeah. and they think we're different from you, but we're really not. Yeah, if you, if what color is your blood? Yeah, <laughs> That's the way I've yeah. been explained to it before. So. Yeah. You uh, built so going back to the, your amigo journey. I'm interested in in the fact that it's you. I think you and I have spoken about it. Where you only had clients in America, you had yep. no clients in Australia. How difficult was was that process of actually just trying to win work it, outside of the country? It, it was actually a lot easier than than people think, and there's some reasons why. It was actually harder to sell in Australia where it's not a competitive environment and it's a very small market. So uh, like we had a, a customer in Australia, they want exclusivity for their their industry. We never were asked that in the U.S. Yeah, well. And the thing is, uh, in the U.S., it's so competitive. If they don't grab onto the latest technology, uh, they could lose their job because their competitor will... Uh, and, and leapfrog them, and they'll be out of work. Uh, so they're very open to trying new new things, and they didn't care that we're for a small company in Adelaide where the, the Australian companies cared about that. Mm. Uh, they said, oh, are you going to be in business? Uh, yeah. All they cared about, will you make us money? And so it was actually easier to sell in the U.S. than in Australia. How big did the company become you know headcount wise well i i would say let me do i'll just leave it at revenue wise uh, our best year was 24 million yeah so and as i said it's paid out it was extremely profitable because uh like i'd go to sleep wake up in the morning found we made thirty thousand dollars while we were sleeping yeah, someone wow. was clicking in the u.s and buying products uh, yeah. uh and so it became a, a very profitable we didn't need a lot of people and that's the ideal business model where you make money while you're asleep. Where did the idea come from? Well, originally the uh, the idea was we could find stuff Google couldn't find. We had a so. So where does that come from? I'm interested in oh, that oh, thought. Okay, process. the idea was, came was out Google of Google not it, up to scratch. Then? It, I mean, the search engine world uh, back in those days. Yeah. No. Well, the idea came out of a a, a, a research project from the Flinders University okay. where our CEO was consulting to. And this is in the dot-com boom, and I was caught up in that. I said, oh, well, let's sell this for a billion dollars in two years. Yeah. Um, but then the dot-com boom ended, and we had yeah. to find a product. So we started out, um, I said, we need to get a product. And we said, well, let's do a search engine for searching in with websites and intranets. And we, we had a few customers, but it was very competitive. They didn't see the real value in that. And one day I said, well, if we could find stuff Google couldn't find, maybe we could make that visible to Google. And in those days, like Sony Europe had 60,000 products, none of them were in Google's database. That is no longer an issue now. 
But in those days, that was important. So uh, within three months after engaging us, they had all 60,000 products in Google, mm-hmm. paying us 10 pence a click. Uh, then our CTO had a great idea of expanding the number of pages based on popular search phrases. Uh, and we learned how Google linking worked. And so we were really the world expert, I think, in understanding Google's ranking algorithms and and also to do this automatically. Be, uh, our competitors just had people in India just creating pages and we could keep up when things changed on the site. So yeah, it became very, very lucrative. How come Google didn't buy you guys? Oh, they couldn't really because, um, because they view their... Fr- organic or free listings as objective okay so they could buy a company that's trying to get themselves high in the free listing in fact they made it very difficult for seo companies search engine optimization Mm. companies uh they used to you know provide a lot of data uh, and then they stopped doing that then they started punishing sites you used to see in the old days like amazon or ebay would rank number one in google but they realized their competitors now they don't rank anywhere so yeah. in Google. So, yeah, that's the nature of business. How important do you – or how much emphasis do you place now on SEO with people? I think it's know? still very important. And the one thing I would say to anyone is get really good quality links to your site. Like say if you get a, a university or government organization linking to your site, Google will think that's a really – Valuable. So how do you it. how do you do that? How that, do you? I, that's the the challenge, and that's not question. easy. So is that something your amigo does, or uh, is that no, like, no, that uh, no. You need to uh, some of the companies they get them by putting out great content, um, uh, encouraging people. Uh, maybe they blog a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to, why would a to, government organization link to they, someone? They probably want. Yeah. Uh, uh, but if they do, then it's then, really valuable. Yeah. But so yeah. you, we often hear the government and then the universities. They're the two that everyone says get them to link, and it, then you're yeah, you're, you're yeah. flying. What's three and four? What's up? To, uh, well, let's say you let's say Westpac Bank to link yeah. to you mm-hmm. or. BHP, so I mean, big, big, big multinational. I- exactly, yeah. they, you know, some uh, l- large sites, uh, uh, like like the the guy who does. There's a guy who lives not far from here. Uh, Finn Peacock does solar quotes. Yeah, and I think when he started out, he didn't rank very well, but now he's the number one in in solar industry, and he yeah. puts out some really great content about solar, how to save money on batteries. And he's got a very, very successful business. And he he's, uh, he was indicating that a lot more of his traffic is now coming organically, mm-hmm. where in the early days he had to pay for it. Yeah, okay. I, I still don't get why a Westpac or anyone would link to a, a, another site unless it was an offering that they would. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's say you're in startup world. Uh, maybe you can get into startup get startup daily or you know news organizations yeah. might link to you and yeah. then uh, maybe westpac might uh, you might be their customer and they'll 
say, here's, uh, a, here's okay. a business of ours there that's you go. Right. done so really well. you got to find an angle there. Yeah, yeah. That's a difficult one. I don't have an easy answer to that. Uh, no, no, yeah, because it always, everyone says, oh, you got to get on these big websites. And it's like, why would it, they it's, ever? It's very, very <laughs> difficult. But yeah, start right getting great content and having other people link to you. And maybe you get publicity. Maybe it would be new sites linking to you initially. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you... You do a lot of work in this startup world now. You mentioned all the three different universities that you, you do mentoring programs through and that you've now invested in plus six or yeah. so companies. Why is there an altruistic thing that you've got going on there? Why do you um, why not why not just be the unemployed lazy bum? Yeah, or maybe it goes back to that. My spiritual journey is like I figure we all have a, a purpose in life to try and make things better. And I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example. Uh, uh, a couple months ago, I, I had chest pains and I had to have a stent put in my heart. And I, I realized, uh, yeah, when the doctor said, you've got to come here immediately, pack your bags, uh, I, I started telling my wife about our financials, <laughs> just panicking. <laughs> But I, I thought about that, that like what would happen if I, I did die? Like what would meaning would have my life had? And I think the fact that like I invested in some startup companies uh, that might not be here if I didn't invest in them, uh, and those companies are producing good products, employing people in Adelaide, uh, doing something positive uh, that... Uh, even after I, I'm gone, long gone, there'll be something that maybe I, I made some difference. And I feel the same way with my mentoring that I, I don't get paid for it. But if I make a difference to somebody's life, then that, that's really meaningful. And that's, to me, what the purpose of life is, I think. Absolutely, giving back. Yeah. yeah. When you mentor uh, these startups, these founders, what is your first thing that you would look at? What, what's the when you walk in through the door, or when they sit down with you the first time? What's the question that you would ask? Uh, well, I think I, I do more listening to, okay. to to find out what they have, where they're at, what, uh, uh, and as a investor, what I've always looked at is, uh, and this comes from maybe a Silicon Valley mindset, is market size mm -hmm. market potential because uh, you want something that'll be really big if you're an investor uh, and a lot of these companies that I've seen uh, they might be a viable business but that doesn't wouldn't excite an investor you want something that could be really big and could grow quick and has a unique competitive advantage uh, then I try to build relations with the founders uh, so all the, the, the companies I invested in, I've known the founders for a long time, which I can get away with in Adelaide because there's no competition <laughs> yeah, right. to be an investor where I couldn't do that in Silicon Valley. But I think that's really important to build relations and, and see that they're getting traction. They're people who can get things done. Um, but with everyone, I, I try to see how I could help them, even the ones that maybe not have a lot of potential to see if I can connect them with someone I know. Mm. And that's one of the most valuable things I can do as a mentor. Is to, to network. Yeah, exactly. Do you, um, do you put a lot of importance on the type of character of the entrepreneur that yeah, you're That to me is the highest importance. Yeah. Um, 
like, um, oh, I might not have invested in Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah. I thought he was a bit of a jerk. Yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, the, uh, to me, that that's really important that you're investing in people who are going to do good things in the world and, and have people who enjoy working in their companies. That, that's very important to me. Um, but also, uh, I have a business mindset. You want to see someone who can be successful. So it's not a charity yeah. thing. So I'm curious, as an inv- you are is an investor, and I, I dabble in the share market, and I, I work in, I do my own property investing and uh-huh. stuff like that. But nothing to the point where I'm giving money for uh, for people to build businesses. Where um, I'm interested in, if, if I was to go to the share market and buy a penny stock, at, I would know it's pretty volatile. I'll put some mm. money into it. I know it's most likely I'm going to lose my money on that, but I'm going to mm. have a crack anyway. If I put my money into the Commonwealth Bank or into some of these bigger firms, I know it's a bit more stable. Yeah. I'm potentially going to get the 10% growth, 5 yeah. to 10% growth a year uh, and, and, and the return dividends and whatnot. When you're investing in a business, is it are you essentially going for that big hit? You, is that what you're looking for, or like the, are you yeah. investing in the penny stock for the big potential growth, or do you ever invest in companies that are stable and uh, with, uh, uh, sustainable growth? So, so uh, fortunately, I, I am well off. I've got a lot of money in index funds. Mm-hmm. It's all a lot of it's in my super fund, yep. which is very tax effective. But I have a, a speculative portfolio. Uh, which is quite large, uh, probably one of the more active investors in, in Adelaide. Um, yeah, it's one and a half, over a hundred, one and a half million in uh, almost two million in, in venture capital and, mm-hmm. and uh, Adelaide-based startups. But if I lost that, I, I it wouldn't change my life. So uh, when you're looking at investing in speculative type things, uh, Make sure that you can afford to lose that money yeah. uh, um, or that you can recover if you do. Um, but do a lot of due diligence. The problem I would have with, like, with penny stocks is you have no idea who's managing That's or right. running these yeah. companies. Whereas by mentoring and being involved with these startup founders, I have a, a pretty good insight into how the opportunity and the entrepreneur. Yeah. Great. What's one area in when you're investing and you build these relationships and you've obviously invested in six plus six uh, different businesses, what's the area that you see in potential investment opportunities that hold you back? Like you go, no, no, that's a deal breaker for me or no, that you know, you mentioned market size and character being two critical Mm -hmm. ones. Is there anything that'll is a non-negotiable for you that you won't, no, I'm not going to. Okay. Yeah. I think every investor has a certain appetite. Um, So I like software as a service companies. Um, I I don't care for hardware or product companies, although I have recently invested in one um, because I think it's kind of unique and has unique competitive advantage. I love software because uh, once it's developed, it can be easily distributed, sold, can be very high margin, mm-hmm. can grow very rapidly. Uh, you can sell it over the internet in many cases. Uh, so that that's one thing. So yeah, uh, I don't understand consumer products or or software just selling to masses of consumer, hoping we'll get millions of people to sign up. Mm. Uh, 
I don't understand that or, or claim to, so I, I don't invest in those sorts of things. So going back to the um, Silicon Valley, there's a common belief in Silicon Valley that, well, pe- entrepreneurs and startup founders where failure in their business and you mentioned earlier that most startups in 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 silicon valley fail they they wear this failure as a badge and in fact some investors don't even go near or invest unless they've had one or two failures before do you adopt the same mindset uh no uh i never really heard that till i got here when i was in silicon valley the people they admired were Steve Jobs, Larry Ellison, were all the successful people. Mm. I think what is good there um, is they don't hold it against you. Like okay. if you worked at a startup and it didn't work out, uh, that's okay. Um, uh, yeah, I think. So you would say that they're more forward thinking there than here? Yeah, more, exactly. More open to that yeah. where um, I've known people here who thought if they, their startup failed, they would never get a job yeah. in Adelaide. Where you would never think like that in Silicon Valley. You know, there's always someone other. They know you have a skill, and and what is your skill, um, and what what results can you get? And a lot of times things don't work out, but you learn from that, and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> the the Tonsley precinct where Flinders and and a few other universities work out, it, it's been earmarked by the South Australian government. Or it was earmarked by the South Australian government as becoming the next Silicon Valley. What's your belief? Well, when I came here, it was almost 28 years ago, Daniel. I I worked with this bright group of people in defense company. I thought Adelaide would be the Silicon Valley of Australia within five years, and that never happened. And I why, have, why do you feel? That? Yeah, well, my theory is, which uh, a lot of people may disagree with me, but we're a kind of a big public service town and <laughs> that is one thing that holds everything back like in silicon valley everything is private industry if you need mm-hmm. funding you go to private industry you need customers you go to private industry but here we have what over a hundred thousand people work directly for the state government you know that the, you don't see that is there. it a population thing though that the government can support that many people uh, as opposed to in in america uh, in the u.s uh, uh, well, i i think uh, adelaide's a big enough city uh, um they use that population i think is being used as an excuse um mm. because like, just places like boulder colorado is a lot smaller than adelaide but has many more uh, unicorn companies and so I don't. I think the problem is also government doesn't really understand startups. They're the exact opposite. They're a big bureaucracy, very risk adverse. They don't want to buy from startups. They'd rather buy from a large multinational. And what we might see uh, is our, our most successful startup in Adelaide, as I understand, is Sweat, which kind of like came from nowhere just like Apple Computer did, just Mm. came from someone's idea who worked in their garage and tinkering and found there was a huge market for it. Yeah, the guys that sweat were at that talk that you did the other night, if you uh, remember. There were a couple of people there there from there. there. Which is great because I think also what we lack in Adelaide is successful companies where spinoffs can come from. So Mm. people who work at Sweat may one day start their own startup and they have learned a lot from that. There's this 
common belief with startups and I th- my belief is that it holds a lot of people back that they don't go in to the startup world, obviously. And you talk about the South Australians being uh, the public service state, so there's that security of being paid. It's an easy job. Entrepreneurship and, and starting your own business is often seen as, as difficult. And we have a great lifestyle here. Why would you work those long hours? Well, that's the thing. So why would you work those long hours? Is there a lack of purpose in the world? Is there a lack of reason to succeed? You know, I heard statistics lately that uh, in each household we watch 40-plus hours per week uh, of TV. Now, that's a whole work week that we could be putting into our businesses and growing. Why do you believe the well, what do you believe is going to be the biggest barrier for South Australia moving forward to be actually becoming a, a hub of some sort? Uh, I think it will happen because I've seen Silicon Valley change. And in the last eight years, I've seen Sydney change. Uh, when Atlassian listed mm-hmm. overnight, Sydney has changed. Those people who founded Atlassian, they've invested in Blackbird Ventures, they've invested in Canva, when Canva lists, Mm -hmm. you're gonna see all those people with money, they're gonna reinvest. But what I'm starting to see, we have more young people who are are embracing the startup idea, like they don't wanna work for a big corporate, Mm -hmm. they're willing to work hard in the long hours. Currently, the problem we have in Adelaide, and this is the biggest challenge, is a lot of those people leave because there's not enough job opportunities or quality opportunities. And there's a view, like when I went to the headquarters of Google in Mountain View and the headquarters of Canva in Sydney, I had the lunch there, and they're like all (laughs) 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, very high senior positions, where Adelaide's almost the opposite. you got to wait your time. Yeah, yeah. but that's where if you create new, innovative, dynamic companies – Uh, there'll be a chain reaction. So I'm hopeful that will happen here, although it's taken a lot longer than what I thought. So the success of Atlassian, Canva, Sweat, these companies, having them as as a a goal set, people look at them and go, well, I can do the same, I can create the same. The more and more of them we get, you you believe that will will turn into something great? Absolutely. So uh, when... Blackbird Ventures raised their first fund in 2012, 2013. They pitched, I think it was 540 people to get 85 people to invest like me, founders. And it was a very small fund, only 29 million. And I I thought, well, they had the founders of Atlassian and I knew who they were, um, but no one else did. now Blackbird's raised, their last fund was $500 million. Oh, wow. So their first fund uh, would be in the top 1% performing funds in the world. Prior to that, uh, venture capital in Australia was loss-making. So super funds wouldn't invest. They were banned. It was too risky. Now super funds are investing. And so we're seeing sort of the same chain reaction that happened in Silicon Valley when Apple listed success breeds success. And that is the future. It's pretty obvious to me that if you're in the digital economy, you're doing really well. If you're not, you're just going to struggle. Mm. Is that a, is that, 
scary for you that everything's moving digital or you believe that's the right I, way to go? I see a lot of positives to that. Mm-hmm. It's, I do think it makes our lives better in, in many ways. Um, and even like old companies, uh, let's say like mining BHP, they're now becoming tech companies. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to find iron ore. You've got to dig it out efficiently and use technology to discover it. So everything is changing. And the problem, as I see, is that wealth isn't being spread out amongst a lot of people who don't have uh, the education or job skills to work in, a, in the tech the economy. Tech. Yeah. And so that, that's a big challenge. And I think that's a, the biggest problem in America is like half the people, you know, they don't have a university degree and they've been left behind. And so they're angry. But we need to get they need to get some skills to fit in the new economy well it goes back to the mindset thing and, and it's it, you know you can only blame yourself at the end of the day if you're yeah. if you are one of those people that's sitting in front of the tv for 40 hours a week then you need to look long hard yeah at but, what you're but i think doing. that's the reality that is it will always be the majority of people who just want an easy nice easy life i think the ones that do startups you're the top couple percent. Uh, and so like one of the companies I invested in, Jindu Lee, founded Happy Co. Um, he couldn't really raise capital, much capital in Adelaide and got into Startmate and then went to San Francisco and it's done extremely well there. But I think that's what we see. The top couple percent are, are the ones who will, will carry a, a lot of things, the people who he had a lot of ambition and mm. drive and he knew how to sell. Um, so, yeah, the reality is most people aren't going to be great startup founders, even, even if they try. Well, it comes back to that mindset thing and, you know, the creating, creating synergy. We're big learners and growers and readers and we, we constant belief in, in developing ourselves and others. How much emphasis did you place on that on yourself? Did you did you read? Did you you know? There's the, the the saying that those who are illiterate and those who don't read are pretty much the same person. Do you put put a lot of time and effort into your growth? Yeah, well? uh, uh, every day I read a lot of things on the internet, so mm-hmm. I, I I think I know a lot about a lot of things. I'm not like at Bill Gates level who reads stacks of books. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's one of the smartest people. But what I would do is look at what he thinks. Yeah. Because I would have a lot of respect. Here's yeah. a, a really smart guy who's done all the research. Absolutely. Um, but what I find there's two ways of learning. And my skill was always more analytical, reading, uh, were, uh, doing research, where other people learn by talking to people. Mm. They're great communicators. That wasn't my strength because... There's a lot of information people have that aren't in books or aren't in the public domain. Yeah, it's information they've just never written down. It, exactly. Yeah. But by talking to people or in knowing the right people, you'll learn something that a lot of other people don't know. So there, there are two ways, I think, of learning, and both are really important. Do you believe that all leaders, entrepreneurs, should invest in their own personal development if you're investing into a company or even if you're looking and giving advice to a ceo of a multinational is part of your advice in in continuous growth and improvement Uh, yeah but they probably won't listen to my advice (laughs) i think to be a a a ceo which probably i wouldn't be great at i think i'm good in a team 
But a CEO, you've got to have a bit of an ego. Uh, and sometimes that means you don't listen to others, which is a weakness. I think Steve Jobs' strength at Apple was even as big of a company as it was. He said, best ideas win. So when they were looking at doing the, uh, he was told, oh, let's do a, 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 a the iTunes shop. We're going to do a, um, have all these an app shop. He said, that was a stupid idea. And then the next day, he said, we're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of their more profitable divisions. Absolutely. I get 30% of the app. And that's what made their hardware successful. So yeah. I'll give him credit. He was flexible enough to change. What I see when leaders uh, fail is they stop listening to other people and they just listen to their own point of view. Why do you believe they listen to their own point of view? Is it an ego thing? Is it their belief that they know it all? Why would anyone, especially given the amount of knowledge that's out in the world at the moment, why would anyone stick to their own? I, I think it, there is a, uh, they probably been, it is an ego thing. They've been successful in what they've done. So they think they're smarter than other people or, or they know more, um, or uh, a lot of people put the bad ideas forward. They have to sift through all that. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes maybe when a good idea comes forward, they, they ignore that. But the best teams I've seen are the ones where anyone in the organization can come up with a good idea and it gets embraced. Those are the most successful organizations. I think uh, Canva is like that. I think Atlassian is like that. And that's one of the reasons they're very successful. Talking about mindset and personal growth and development and understanding self, what you're you obviously uh, very into the spiritual alignment, especially in your younger days. I'm not so, not so much sure now. I, I am, but it's hidden. It's hidden. Yeah. Do you, what is one attribute that you believe has held you in good stead throughout your journey? One attribute that you have in, in your core. That's uh, that's gotten you through all the hard times, the ups and downs. Uh, well, one thing I always believed is really important is to always tell the truth. Um, uh, sometimes we may stretch things a little bit, but but stick close mm -hmm. to the truth because in the long run, truth matters. It may make you unpopular with people. Um, I may tell people something they don't want to hear, but. I've also found it hurts me when I try to sell because I say the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. But for me, that works really well because uh, as an analytical person, I need to test things and understand uh, is, what is the reality uh, of the situation. And so I think being honest and trustworthy, um, uh, I think people who know me trust me mm -hmm. uh, overall. And that's really important. Um, some people who don't know me may not like me, but that does I don't care. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah. A, that's a great attitude. Yeah. People have a really good bullshit radar too. If you're yeah. not telling the truth, you yeah. talk about analytical uh, people being analytical and yourself being one of those people. If, if you are telling uh, a lie or you're not telling the full truth, people can very quickly add it up. That's true, but what scares me, let's take a guy like Bill Gates. I, th I really admire all the work he's done on vaccinations mm -hmm. and, and... The malaria and uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah and the same the plant, but there are a lot of conspiracy theories. He's trying to put a microchip yeah. in people and the vaccinations are evil. And so that, that scares me that a lot of yeah. people can't see through it. Uh, 
but I think you still stick with the truth and eventually people will, most people will wake up. Absolutely. Do you believe that we're going to see a boom after this pandemic of people, you know, with all the jobs lost and um, will people be more willing to go out on their own and try to start? I think uh, a lot of people are forced to, you know, and this is the interesting thing. Had I stayed in Silicon Valley, I would probably still be working as an accountant for some company right now. Yeah. It would have been easier. Yeah. But had I, because I came to Adelaide and it was difficult, I was forced to try something new. So, yeah, I think we'll see uh, more people. And I am seeing that at university level students, like it used to be they wanted to be the lawyer, doctor, accountant, engineer. And now more and more are realizing, yeah, we want to be a startup founder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's the light at the end of the tunnel. And you did talk about purpose before people are actually realizing that going to work and uh, working for a leader that is not so inspirational and actually hasn't got people connected to the vision isn't what they want to do. When I had two contracts in the public service, one was state and one was federal, I was going absolutely crazy. Um, I was there with a bunch of other accounting contractors who thought it was fine. They were getting a paycheck, but I couldn't handle, there was no passion there. People didn't care if they did the right thing. And that was really important to me. So uh, I didn't fit into that that environment. No, that's good. So we're here where we are today. We're at your beautiful home here mm -hmm. in Seacliff, which is a beautiful view of the ocean. How How is unemployed, lazy life treating you oh uh, re really good as i say i uh, uh i have a, a really unique uh experience i have a very stress-free life uh and then i go out and watch our pond and get even less stress <laughs> but uh it's been just a for while. reference there's a fifty thousand dollar pond sitting out the back yeah there, more than yeah. That, a little more than that but than yeah that. it is it's, but it's, it's beautiful and i, I love nature but um, all my life, it was a real struggle, you know, like going back to the Navy. I was at the bottom of the bottom, barely making a living. And if I didn't save my money, I, I, no one else was going to take care of me. Uh, I had jobs I hated. I had bo bosses I didn't like. And I just put up with it to try and make a living. And I'm, I got lucky, I think, that uh, our startup was successful. Things turned around. Um, and now I'm experienced almost the exact opposite of when I was younger, just have a, a really good life. Um, but what I think I did find important when I did retire, I did a lot of volunteer jobs. Uh, like I drive prisoners to job training and listen to depressed people. But I enjoyed working with young entrepreneurs. I found you need to interact with people and do something positive, uh, which is really important. So I spend some of my time doing that but uh, never more than I feel I can handle. So. Yeah, that's great. So what, what is your definition of success then? Uh, well, I think uh, success, uh, I'll give you a Bible quote. It's, I think Jesus said, and I'm not a Christian, but the greatest uh, the one is the one who serves the most. Mm. And I, I believe that's a definition of success. So giving back as much as you... Yeah, as helping you other people. And a lot of those people aren't rich, um, but those are people I admire. I'm not 
that great of a person, I could do more. Um, but I admire people who are like that because I think they make it the real difference in the world more than people who, this is what I struggled with Apple. I, I don't, uh, what I would have told Steve Jobs is I don't think building great products is what changes the world. I think, you know, helping people um, is what changes the world for the better. Some would argue that products can add to the ability to help people. I mean, you connect with more people now. There now. is a lot of truth to that, uh, 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 but that's a good example. On the flip side, we have all these conspiracy theories yeah, spreading true. over the internet, so it can be used for good or evil. Correct, and the bullying. Uh, and, but I, and overall, whatnot. I believe technology is a good thing and yeah. it helps make people's lives better. <laughs> Technology, but, if used correctly or in yes. the way that it was intended. Yeah, uh, you still have the fundamental brand. This is the question I asked myself in high school, what it took to be a great person. And I thought the people who made the world better were the people who changed how people thought, you yeah. know, how, how they, they lived their lives um, rather than the ones who were sports heroes or entertainment stars mm. or, or made a lot of money. But yeah, and which I thought were like, religious type leaders but a lot of them aren't really as religious as they claim to be we have a team uh of, of in our in our, well, our business uh, with synergy iq of a team of coaches we do a lot of leadership mm -hmm. and growth development coaching and some of the of, of our team always report back to us and say when they see the light bulb go off and just work you know mm. as a as a coach you ask questions you don't tell them what to do you help them get to the answer that they're looking for through the questioning process it, when you when you see the light bulb go mm. off in these people's heads and, and and you can see the it almost if even if it's just that one degree shift mm. of their thinking you just know that in in five years time they could be in a different spot that is it is such a great feeling knowing that you have had a positive impact on someone's life. Exactly. I think that's, to me, the purpose of life. Mm. If you can make a difference in other people's lives in a positive way, it creates a chain reaction because then that person will maybe change someone else in a positive way. And that maybe is what really changes the world. But I have to say a lot of times in my mentoring, I, I question whether I'm really making a difference, like do people listen to what I got to say, yeah. or think about, it. but there are probably moments when they do and I don't realize it all the time. Yeah, yeah it's often people come to me to for advice and I dare say they would come to you more so. It's those conversations that you have five or six years down the track with these people again that they'll turn around and, you know, I could even say it to you one day and I'll say, Stuart, you know, that thing you said to me five years ago, that completely changed my life. It's those comments that you don't really know that yeah. you're even saying uh, that have the most impact, I believe. So, which puts a lot of emphasis on make sure the words that you use and, the, and what you're actually saying to people is in check and can off and can be of value um don't, yeah. so I, I think people who are mentees should give thanks to their mentors and, and let them know how it helped and i don't know I often don't hear back so yeah i think that's an important thing would is to good. give feedback and even if, it, if you get bad advice tell them oh, i don't think that was really the right thing for me yeah and, and you need that as Absolutely. a mentor to, to know if We're you're learning helping people or not very good. All right, so we're at the one hour mark, so we'll start wrapping up. We have a quick, some quick fire questions. I just uh -oh. like to round it off just to uh, 
get get the, the inner workings of your brain mm. a little bit and how it all goes to hand. But one question I do ask everyone, and like I said, we are big readers here at Creating Synergy. What is one book or one YouTube video or article that you've watched in your career or read in your in your lifetime that you would recommend to entrepreneurs, leaders, or anyone who's looking at improving themselves? Uh, well, I can only recommend. A, I don't read a lot of books, as I said. I mainly yep. look at things on, yep. online. But uh, many years ago, in uh, my first year at university. I read a book called Siddhartha, yeah. which affected me. This is affects my spiritual side. Yeah. Like he tried many different things and was many different people before he obtained enlightenment. I yeah. still every ten years I'll read that book yeah. and kind of relate to all, all these experiences we're having are for a reason, and it helps us grow and become better people. Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. I've read yes. that as well. It's an yeah. amazing book. It's similar to The Alchemist, which is the Paulo Coelho, which is a, a journey of a young young lad and goes through life. And I, I should read that book. The then. Alchemist. You you enjoy that okay. too. So, if you had one superpower, what would you what would you have? Oh, uh, I, gee, I I, I um, wish I could. Um, help people uh, in their daily lives and help them to become better people. Uh, and maybe that's not a superpower, but if you change people around you, then they, like I say, I think it will be like a wave that you throw a rock in a, the ripple a effect, bomb. there's yeah. a ripple effect. And so, uh, yes, I wish I could touch more people's lives That'd in a positive good. way. Brilliant. If you had a time machine, access to a time machine, where would you go? Um, I'm happy where I am now. Um, I've studied a lot of history, uh, especially like of World War II and the Holocaust, the extremes, um, to see the dark side of people. But um, uh, I think I'm here now for a reason. So you're not interested with the next hundred years would look like or? uh well i think we are creating it now yeah okay. so um i am i sure i'd be curious what it, it turns out to be like but i think we're creating that and so the future is up to us is what it looks like do you ever feel like i often have conversations with people and they're like oh it's it's frustrating knowing that I'm not going to be around in 200 years time to see you. uh, you've well, obviously played a lot, especially in the, uh, in well, the startup I, world. I feel logically uh, uh, this. Ha I haven't experienced the near death experience, but I've seen hundreds of YouTube videos of people who have, <laughs> yeah. and I believe that's that our our soul, our spirit will live forever. And if it doesn't, well, does it matter? Um, yeah. But I, I believe that's probably what happens, and uh, it's nothing to fear or be afraid of. Dying is, uh, I guess, the only thing about dying I, I don't like is the pain. Like you know, when I you felt chest pains, that wasn't pleasant. But yeah. if I fell died in my sleep, I'd be happy as long as I've accomplished the things I want to do, and I, I still have some things left I want to achieve. Well, that was going to be my next question. What's one item on your bucket list uh, outside of business? Outside of business, well, I guess the only thing in my life that I would say is less than perfect is my relations with my my family, ex family, and mm -hmm. I hope to, that will reconcile. I don't feel it's under my control though. I've done everything I felt I could, but 
hoping that maybe as they grow, as people, we, we will connect and have a, an extremely loving relationship would be my goal. Brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. Look, thank you very much, Stuart. It's been an amazing podcast and uh, mm. getting inside your brain and understanding mm. the inner workings of how, how you went about your uh, your career and your and your life thank you very much where can people find you who are interested in connecting uh, uh i'm on linkedin link to me uh my e- email address stuart.snyder54 at gmail.com i'll catch up with most everyone for a coffee if they who wants to or really see value in my advice so so every single investor who listens to this uh, sorry entrepreneur who listens to this uh, will be knocking uh, on uh, your door uh, oh, I, i've met a lot of lots of people uh, but you know i've invested in very few but um <laughs> see if i can it's help good. in any way gives me a lot of satisfaction and i i get more out of it probably than they do i meet a lot of interesting people brilliant mm. thank you very much for your time today Stuart. it's been been amazing and uh we'll catch you next time guys cheers Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.